Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's um, what's happening in Canada? I'm like afraid to ask. I've been seeing too much news. I just need to. Um, why don't you just come here, like you, all the listeners? Just let's all go someplace else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things are not great. Things are not very good in this country. I mean, it depends on where you are. Uh, Of course, today is the anniversary of the shooting attack that happened in Nova Scotia last year. And I believe last year at this time when we were were recording, the news was just coming out and we had only heard of one death and it was the death of a police officer. And the way that that has um, seemingly been part of the of the PR game that the RCMP played, where they really tried to make sure that this was the attention was focused on a on a fallen officer and not on the like very troubling, problematic, bizarre mistakes that the RCMP uh seemed to do uh, those uh those were not known yet and of course we know a little bit more now i want to shout out archie man's podcast the police for canada land commons if you haven't listened to the episodes about the shooting in nova scotia you really really have to um so mention for that but uh you know but otherwise in nova scotia the rest of the Maritimes, Newfoundland and Labrador, things are going pretty well, it seems. Seems like folks in the territories are doing okay. I saw there was first cases in Iqaluit this past week, which is not good. But I know in, in, in Yukon, something like 68% of people have been vaccinated. So that's good news. Um, what prov- What am I missing uh, in this country? I don't know. There's some pretty big provinces you didn't talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's going on? Uh, okay, let's see. Um, okay, uh, we'll start from uh, best to worst. Uh, Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't actually work because we're going to go to Ontario next. Yeah. Um, Quebec is Quebec is is not doing super great, but they're not the worst. Our cases have been pretty steadily in the in the fifteen hundreds range every day. Ontario is going to, I think, dominate this conversation tonight. Mm-hmm. Manitoba is like sitting back with the some of the highest case counts in northern Manitoba, but no one's paying attention to that because of racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the third wave in that province has not yet started. It has started in Saskatchewan, where very few people uh, are able to know really what's going on because the data that get, that's given out by the uh, health authority and by the province is shitty. And this past week, Victor Thunderchild, who was a guidance counselor, a beloved guidance counselor at a high school in Prince Albert, passed away. And his last tweet was begging Premier Scott Moe to make vaccines available to teachers within the province. So that was heartbreaking. And uh, shout out to everybody who's uh, who listens to us from PA. Then you got Alberta, uh, which is on fire with COVID. Mm. And we will talk about that tonight. And then you've got British Columbia, which is also on fire with COVID. And it seems that what do these provinces have in common? They all have the similar type of premier that's just trying to maintain things the way that they are as they then actually get worse. Uh, Well, that's um, uh, all sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get more into it, perhaps we should uh, thank some people. Let's start with gratitude, 
shall we? Ooh, that's such a good idea. We have a lot of folks to thank. And so I want to say thank you so, so much to Molly, Gail, Christina, Ryan, Arlie, MC Football, Bella, Brendan, Jackie, Einer, Alexandra, Robin, Arcy, Kate, and Rachel. That was a lot this week. Wow. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much. Really feeling the love. Okay. So before we get into um, Canada COVID disaster part 7,000, the next leader of the Liberal Party of Canada is releasing her first budget tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) You see how I slid another prediction in there, Christian Freeland. And So we're recording on Sunday. The budget's coming out on Monday. This episode will come out on Tuesday. Should we make some predictions that will then, you know, be correct? Yes. (laughs) On Tuesday when people listen to it? Um, Absolutely. Perhaps we should do that before we get into the big COVID mess. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the budget's going to probably be a big COVID mess. I imagine the the journalists will be focusing on the spending mitigation that is going to be inside of the budget related to the very large deficit as a result of COVID. But Sandy, do you have any? What do you think the big the big story is going to be? Are you that bold to make that kind of prediction tonight? I mean, everyone seems to be thinking it's going to be childcare, mm-hmm. which is like. Cool. We made that prediction about a year ago. And what did we say a year ago, Nora? I'll remind you, if you forgot, (laughs) what we said a year ago is that the Liberal Party will absolutely announce that they will do some sort of child care thing. But just right at the time, just before an election, when it's kind of like too late to actually implement it, and the whole thing will be like, hey, you got to actually elect us. If you want to see this come to fruition, which has been done with childcare like what uh, a gazillion times now, so I'm ready to see that again. <laughs> I'm ready <laughs> to see that again to see um, that be the way that they're going to get us out of the sheet session. The sheet session. Um, yeah, and then they, I mean, they released a bunch of. There's been some stuff that's come out already that was leaked to routers about how they're not going to implement a wealth tax. So more of the same for corporations and stuff. Like they're going to keep their rich people happy. They're going to um, to, to, to promise some stuff that they can't get done before the election is over. That's that's my prediction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. San, well, Sandy was uh, suggesting before we recorded that maybe we should wait for the uh, aftermath of the budget so we can do kind of like a really live episode so, you know, you get our our hot take after the budget to come out. And I I made my prediction in suggesting that we don't do that, which is to say the budget's going to not be worth it. <laughs> It'll be inconsequential. But what I do want people to look for, so if you're listening to us on Tuesday, that means the budget just came out. And that means that the, the journalists are going to be framing the stories based on what they think the most important issues are. And as Sandy said, childcare is going to definitely be one of them, depending on, of course, what's in the budget. But there will be something for childcare. It's going to be shitty, but there's going to be something. Um, but what I really encourage uh, listeners to look for is th- what happens to the security budget. And so that is the budget that we spend on our uh, international engagements of war, uh, because usually those are the biggest chunks of the budget, um, the last normal budget before the pandemic, so the 2019 budget, earmarked $2 billion for um, military in 
Iraq and Syria and then probably other places like Ukraine. And so pay attention to that because there's going to be some of that in this budget and journalists will not talk about it. And the other thing to pay attention is the other side of the security apparatus, which is borders and policing. And that's also going to be a really big chunk of money that might make the news a little bit. It might be it'll probably be in roundups of where the money is being spent, but unlikely to be the focus of anybody's analysis. And I suspect after the year that we've seen, after the criticism of the RCMP, you know, Justin Trudeau's government just shut down a committee hearing that was investigating sexual assault within the military. I think that we're going to see more money going to these organizations under the cover of making them better or rooting out sexual assault or in the case of the border, making Canadians, quote unquote, more safe. And so you definitely want to watch for that, dear listeners. And we will mention anything in a week if it's worth it, uh, which it will not be. So I don't imagine you'll hear from us again on this topic. One other thing that I should mention that I do think is going to be announced is uh, is something that tries to buy Black people's support for the election. <laughs> Some pot mm, of money yes. that is going to be allocated, potentially not spent, but maybe spent. And the reason why I say this is because, one, they've done this uh, for the last couple budgets, so I, I, I assume that this is what they're going to do. And also because... A story came out yesterday uh, um, about an organization, the Foundation for Black Communities, that is seeking $200 million from the federal budget, which is the Foundation for Black Communities is a new organization. And so to seek $200 million is like, wow, that's um, a bold ask. But then some of the people who are involved there have run for the Liberal Party in the past. Uh Oh, so it's just it's just curious that that came out just yesterday, and uh, it was a story in the CBC, and the budget's coming out tomorrow. So we'll see. I think there's going to be some sort of allocation there. It'll be curious to see if it goes directly to that new organization because that's weird. Unless you realize that everybody's connected in some way, and that's how <laughs> politics works. <laughs> yes. One more thing that I want to mention that has nothing to do with COVID, although I guess it kind of does. We had a listener get in touch with us. I want to shout out Marissa for that, who uh, after the episode that we did on sexual violence, um, let me know that there is a program in Ontario at some hospitals, at 37 hospitals across the province, where if you or someone you know is experiencing Um, violence, uh, intimate partner violence or gender-based violence, you can go to the emergency room and they will help you under this program. So to find out more, you can look up the the 37 communities uh, uh, by going to SADV Treatment Centers. SADV stands for Sexual Assault Domestic Violence. So sadvtreatmentcenters.ca and the list of the hospitals are there. So just know what's in your your community. Um, This is for Ontario. If folks are aware of other programs that are like this, where people can get help that might be able to kind of be under the cover of other kinds of issues that someone might be dealing with, uh, let us know. You can reach us at Sandy and Nora at ProtonMail.com. Great. So, Nora, Nora, did you watch Doug Ford's announcement on Friday (laughs) as to how he was going to, like, solve all the problems? Sandy, do you know what I was doing on Friday afternoon? Not watching Doug Ford. (laughs) 
I was getting my first McLean's article published in three years. Whoa. And, okay. And the topic was such the topic was such that Doug Ford's press conference, which was originally supposed to be scheduled at two o'clock, had the potential to render my article completely useless. Because had he announced significant or sufficient policies that would stop super spreader events like closing down congregate workplaces or something like that, my article would have been like, oh shit, back to the drawing board. But uh, the article came out at like 2.30 or 3 o'clock. His press conference got pushed to 3, so I was like, sweet, it's going to go out. At the very least, it'll be relevant for an hour. Gets pushed till 4, gets pushed to 4.30. I was like, excellent, relevant for two and a half hours. It's my fucking return to McLean's with like a single article in the health section. And um, oh, no, actually, of course, his announcement was nothing that I had, um, you know, that I had said that that he should do. And so, wow, it looked like Ontario. I mean, I don't want to focus on Ontario because I think that every province that we mentioned off the top of the show is in like a really shitty situation. But Ontario (laughs) seems like uh, not good. It's like really bad. (laughs) I don't know. Seems really bad. Yeah, well, I mean, I really appreciated that he, you know, like hit the major cornerstone of his announcement seemed to be, hey, people of Ontario, uh, for the first time, the police will treat you like they treat just the black and indigenous people of this province. We're going to expand that treatment to everybody. They will be able to stop you on the street. They will be able to stop you in your car and ask you for your address and where you come from, uh, what you're doing, whether what you're doing is essential um, as part of our COVID fighting measure, which has been recommended actually by zero doctors. So that's good. Um, Yeah. And then there was uh, like... Yeah, that was great. And then there was like incredible outrage for it, which was like, aha, like this is what you should be outraged about all the time because they literally didn't change a law. Like that's how <laughs> that's how police can operate right now. They just focus on particular communities. And then hilariously, all the police were like, we are not going to be using these new measures. It's like, but you already use these measures. And then Ontario was like, sorry, we, we walk it back. We are not going to allow the police to treat you like they treat all the black and indigenous people. And it was just like watching it as a black person being like, what the fuck kind of Mm. wacky world of just rhetoric and nothing the fuck else have I landed in? Yeah. I hate you. (laughs) I hate this. (laughs) It's especially shocking considering at the same press conference, like the only other measures that they announced were all like, targeting outdoor activities, which at this point in the pandemic, we know are pretty much safe. Unless you have a bush party where people are like making out and sharing beers in a forest, you're pretty much okay to be outside. And there seemed to be more outrage around the the playgrounds closing than like even the police state stuff, I thought, uh, which was interesting. But, (laughs) uh, you know, but they reversed the playgrounds, which is, I think, really critical. I mean, playgrounds are really important. They should be open. Parks should be open. There should be no fences around cherry blossoms. Like all of that is ridiculous. But the reach to the police as the solution to this pandemic is hilarious. And we have talked about that like in a lot of different ways, but this is this is why I want to I I just want to underline how hilarious it is. So, there have been outbreaks in almost every police detachment 
in Canada where mm-hmm. there's out, where there's COVID. I mean, I'm not really talking about. I'm sure actually there has been some cases probably among the Halifax police, but I don't know. But there have been outbreaks in every police detachment. There was a massive outbreak at the at the Almer Police Academy in Ontario, at the Toronto Police Academy in Toronto. There uh, is currently an outbreak that has taken out the entire senior management of police of the Hamilton Police Force. <laughs> Yeah, I saw that. There's what the <laughs> what the fuck? There, there are several cases in the Vancouver Police uh, Department. There are like the police are have proven themselves as the least effective <laughs> group of people to resist COVID, and perhaps the most effective group of people to get COVID. <laughs> But this is this is really instructive as to what we've been saying about police this entire time that this podcast has been in existence. <laughs> like we the way that police are used in this society is to uh, justify not doing real work to to address real issues elsewhere. So where the government should be taking action on things like sick days, on things like um, making sure that they're shutting down the workplaces where people are getting COVID. What they've announced instead is this other measure that has nothing to do with anything, police. And that is literally how the police are used for every other issue (laughs) that they take care of in society. It's really instructive. Like, I think that the absurdity, because of the urgency of the situation, because everyone's focusing on it right now, is like super clear. And because the media has responded to it in the way that the media could have always responded to the way that police are used for literally everything in society. (laughs) Um, You know, there's been a lot of outrage because... Um, it's obviously absurd. It's obviously absurd. Well, it is also obviously absurd when police are are replacing uh, teachers and counselors in schools. It is also obviously absurd when police are re- are replacing public health officials. It's it's obviously absurd all the time. But really instructive. Like that's the move, y'all. That is the move. Let's just criminalize some new behaviors, like walking around outside, driving your car, and again, like. What was announced was nothing different than how certain people in this province are already are already uh, are already treated by police. But Sandy, they walked back the police state stuff. Yeah, they they walked back nothing. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't actually do anything. So they walked back nothing. All that their admission did was say to the police was signal to the police. Don't worry. There's not going to be a lot of trouble for you if you if you do this stuff. Which, you know, um, you, some police forces responded to, to like the outrage that they were seeing by promising not to do that. But they are already doing those things. So like nothing, nothing about any of this is real. Like it's all just a facade of mm-hmm. talk that <laughs> doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So, you know, fuck Doug Ford. <laughs> yeah, like. <laughs> I guess. Like the, the the great thing about Doug Ford is he's like just a level of incompetence that we we just aren't blessed with very often. Like there's there's a we actually get to see 
what happens when you don't have an evil mastermind like Jason Kenney in power or, you know, we can go back to Dalton McGinty or we could go to Mike Harris, who, by the way, made $230,000 last year as a member of the board of Chartwell, despite the fact that there have been hundreds of people that have died there. Mm, Uh, But we have this bumbling piece of shit fool. And, you know, his his majority government is only a majority government by 10 members of provincial parliament, which is interesting because it's actually the same number of representatives as Jason Kenney is dealing with with a rogue caucus of uh, people who are like, no, COVID's like not that bad. Let it roll. Like, this is fine. Stop giving us measures while at the same time, Alberta actually has some of the highest cases of COVID in Canada. So I, I like the incompetence uh, from a theoretical perspective. And I just have to say I'm really happy to not live in Ontario because for me, not theoretical perspective. It's obviously it's it's frightening, and yeah. the failures of 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 the of institutions to hold the government to account, like are just laid so bare. And I I we I think we'll talk about that more. I before we get into that, I do want to mention that there has been a very important change to how the British Columbia government has been dealing with COVID. Now, John Horgan has has been also not doing a very great job, to say the least. Cases in British Columbia are skyrocketing, and they are um, mostly related to the um, variant, the P3 variant, which is highly virulent. And a lot of that variant can be linked back to uh, the fact that Whistler was open and operating, and people were flying in from different parts of Canada, for sure, and probably different parts of the world. But Horgan, how dare you speak? of Bonnie Henry and John Horgan. (laughs) I know, they suck. Sorry, but they fucking suck. Yeah, the way that people have been talking about them, they're really letting them off the hook. Sorry, go ahead. It's such a, it's such bullshit. So it's like, okay, fine. Horgan, at least this this past week, for, at month fourteen, has finally said that that places with an workplaces with an outbreak that public health can say yes, that is an epidemiologically linked set of cases that surpass three will be shut down, and they'll be shut down for ten days. And why in the fuck did it take fourteen months to get here? The 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 absolute repulsive thing about this is that that was the key to slowing and stopping the pandemic in the first place. That was the key. And, you know, it's one thing to to have a, a long-term care system that is so fucked, that is that profits off of death and that containing outbreaks within it would be very, very difficult. And it was obviously very difficult and that they may have kept on raging while workplaces, at least we contain COVID there. But now that that the vast majority of people living in long term care have been vaccinated and there's no longer the 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 risk of death and serious uh, injury from COVID within these facilities now is is finally when you're going to start actually making workplaces take this seriously. It's a fucking joke. It's a joke. Yeah. Tell me about Alberta. Well, Alberta is is uh, got as I said some of the highest cases in this in this country. Um, Jason Kenney is dealing with a revolt. Um, the polls say that Rachel Notley, the way that she's been talking about the pandemic and the way that she's been responding to to Jason Kenney, has placed her in popularity above Kenney. But this is also a very interesting situation because Kenney has 
um, he like he knitted together a, a party from the fringe right, uh, the, the 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 dregs of the of the Wild Rose Party and of the Conservative Party of the province, in creating the UCP. And obviously, in a moment like this, the fringe dregs are the ones who are like, "No, no, gyms can be open. No, 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 this is too much. Stop it." While at the same time, you have this really frightening far right movement. I think this is the connection that's really really important in a province the size of Alberta. Right, we're only talking about. 4.5 million people, the um, the the risk of of these super spreader events becoming full blown crises in communities across the province is very high, and you know when we were on the air last week, we were talking about the Grace Life Church and the protests that happened there. The amount of anti COVID measure activity in that province is obviously got a direct. A connection to how much COVID is circulating. And Jason Kenney is just not able to keep a lid on it because, I mean, you know, his own caucus is like disagreeing with his policies. And it's also his own caucus that like left Canada for the holidays. <laughs> and we're like, oh, what's the big fucking deal? We're in Hawaii like we do every year. Um, and so things are really desperate there. But as I, as I alluded to, the popularity of, of Rachel Notley and the way that they have responded to this, I mean, it's mostly just words as well. But at least she's putting out the image of someone who has been and who could be again premier, has offered a bit of a flavor to like the opposition of Jason Kenney that just doesn't exist. Uh, it doesn't exist in BC, although the context is a bit different with the liberals being the opposition. It certainly doesn't exist in Saskatchewan. Sorry, Saskatchewan anybody. Certainly doesn't exist in Manitoba. Sorry, Manitoba NDP. And for some reason, despite having like a sizable caucus, a record large caucus since I think probably since they were the government with Bob Ray, the Ontario NDP has been a fucking like, what the fuck? What are you doing? Like, do you do anything? Do you do anything that I can see? Because it looks like you do nothing from what I can see. I don't know. What the fuck? And fuck, like, fuck, like Andrea fucking Horvath has, Horvath has been the leader since, like, like a long fucking time for more than 10 years. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's all very disappointing what's happening at the provincial level uh, across this country. Um, also... It's all the province's fault, though, right? Like, I mean, we can't really blame anyone else for anything that's happening here. I mean, I don't know if you saw what happened today. This is, again, Sunday the 18th, when Justin Trudeau had his press conference about how he was going to help Ontario, right? Mm-hmm. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Um, and, you know, he made it super clear that they're doing everything they can, and, you know, they are with everybody no one is out here alone and they've done they've done all that they can but the provinces are gonna he's like really you know banding the provinces together to like send additional resources to Ontario so in conclusion Doug Ford's fault right yeah of course and the fault of all of the premiers essentially is the implication of that statement because um you know as you say things are worse in Alberta even though people aren't talking about it yes (laughs) Justin Trudeau has to be aware of the existence of the Emergency Measures Act. Has to be. 
Oh, well, in case he's not, we could let him know, I guess. <laughs> hey. I'm like, his dad, his dad, like, fucking used it to just intimidate Canadians in 1970. Like, Justin knows that it exists, right? I mean, it seems like a lot of people don't know that it exists, given the state of my Twitter right now. So let me just let y'all know, in case you didn't know. Um Yes, this is like a super colonial government, super like, you know, into all power resting with the queen. And so um, <laughs> there is obviously an emergency button, despite the fact uh, of uh, the jurisdictional issues that exist between, uh, you know, this being federal jurisdiction and that being provincial jurisdiction. That kind of finger pointing and hand waving or whatever is only used to justify inaction on, on the part of either government. And you could ask, any indigenous person about that. Okay. Like that is how that argument is used. But the idea that the the federal government couldn't do anything to impact uh, what is now at a crisis level right now is absolute fucking bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. And um, people using that as a way to, to uh, apologize for the liberal or to support uh, the liberals in the face of their inaction is bullshit. Like, just look at all of the programs that the liberals have announced throughout this pandemic. The majority of them are for big businesses. <laughs> and even, even like today with Justin Trudeau's announcement, he said, you know, um, you, you, Canadians who are struggling, go to our website check out all the programs we have. You can apply for EI and there's also a wage subsidy. The wage subsidy isn't for individuals. <laughs> EI isn't going to help that much because of the the um, eligibility constraints. Like if you take a look, like there's even a rent subsidy. You might be thinking, oh man, great. A rent subsidy. That sounds great right now for all the people who can't go to work. No, no, no. It's a rent subsidy for businesses. There's no there's no rent subsidy for you. No rent subsidy for individuals. <laughs> it's all crap. It's all crap. It's all a smokescreen. And they could be announcing new measures to support people individually. And they could uh, take on where the provinces are failing and force new measures like paid sick days if they wanted to. Through the Emergencies Act or through, there's other measures that they could use, I'm sure. That's not the only one, but it's the one, it is one that makes a lot of sense right now because we are clearly in an emergency. Eh, fuck, like all of the, sorry for that sound, but that is the sound that I make when I realize that all of the, all of the leaders suck. All of them, all of them. Don't, don't be played. Don't be fooled. Um, by Justin Trudeau pointing the finger at all of the premiers and by all of the premiers pointing the finger at Justin Trudeau. They all failed. Well, the the list of like things that they could do, actually, almost none of the things on your list required the Emergency Measures Act. So, um, you know, they have a federal labor code. There's no paid sick days in the federal labor code. They could enact that tomorrow. Why are they not doing that? Um, why was there more aid and more of a shutdown last year at this time than there is now with cases skyrocketing? 
these are the kinds of questions that, that people need to be holding, uh, posing to Justin Trudeau, posing to the Liberal Party and, and, and asking what the fuck, because it's all such lies. And then if you do look at the Emergencies um, Act, they have the power to set up hospitals. They have the power to set up emergency shelters. They have the power to regulate the distribution of essential goods if they had to do that. They have the power to restrict travel from province to province. Like there's so many not intrusive things that they could be doing, let alone they're the federal government. They could be ordering businesses closed. They certainly can order business closed to the federal labor code. That would be banks. That would be telecommunications. They have the power directly to shut those down. They don't have to pass by the provinces. And so, like, the, 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 this is where federalism is such a, a, a cancer. Like, it's just it, – mm-hmm. it fails all the time, but it especially fails when politicians – continue to just like pretend that they don't have the power and journalists who either don't know or have no interest in challenging these kinds of lines just kind of go with it right the the federal press corps Mm -hmm. is like not the most illuminating illuminative group of fucking people right now and they're not they're not actually pulling out these possibilities and rather everything's being treated like uh, a political football but you know again the the opposition parties like not that i expect aaron o'toole to have any fucking thing good to say, but I do expect Jagmeet Singh to have something good to say about using these powers, about actually intervening, about like, you know, where's the motion about paid sick leave for the federal industries? Like has the, where's, why is the NDP move that? Or anyway, I feel like we've said this like a hundred times. I know. I know. We're just like here repeating ourselves and it's terrible. Mm -hmm, I hate it. mm -hmm. I really I hate it too. It's, it's really frustrating, but it's just all these decisions that are being made to not make decisions. It's just is just so callous. Yeah. It's so uncaring. Yeah. It's so destructive. It is killing people. And I just, you know, it's just um I don't know. It's like, sorry, if if the Emergencies Act isn't meant for a moment like right now, when, when is it, (laughs) what is it meant for? What is exactly, what, how bad, how much more bad does this need to get? Who needs to, oh, I get it. It's the wrong people dying. That's the problem. The people who are dying are the wrong people dying. They're from the wrong class. They are from the wrong races. They have disabilities. It's, you know, it's all terrible. And then, of course, you know, um, mentioning folks with disabilities, like what's happening right now, too, as um, hospitals are filling up, you know, uh, again, I mean, we've talked about before how uh, folks focus on the death rate too much and not on all of the other things that surround what's happening. Like as our hospitals are filling up, um, doctors are talking about how we're, we're now entering the period where in the hospitals, they're going to have to start making decisions about um, who to save. Like the people who would be um, able to be treated uh, may not be able to be treated because the hospitals are just too full. And uh, who are going to be impacted first in terms of those types of decisions when people are making the decision about who is worth saving, um, I guarantee you it's going to be people with disabilities. I guarantee you it's going to be people who are older, 
uh, I guarantee you it's going to be people who already have some sort of uh, complication. Like this is this is where we're at. That's what's at stake. That is what the government, that is the, the decisions of the government has have created that reality. And all of us have folks in our families and in our um, in our communities that that's going to impact. And it scares me. That scares me. Yeah. I think to end this episode, we should talk about then, like, in a democracy, where are the locations to hold governments to account? You know, like, it, it isn't necessarily going to be any of us that are, you know, private citizens who don't have an organization that we lead, who don't have access to money to be able to mount some sort of campaign or to be able to start doing something. But, you know, one of the things that I've been very surprised by, I mean, I'm not actually, but one of the things that is a bit surprising is how little the discussion of how democracy is supposed to work has come up. Because we've had an interesting tension between public health decisions and polit- polit- uh, political decisions, which journalists mostly were like, wow, our politicians are so amazing. They're just listening to public health. And it's like, is that really democracy? Like, like, actually, is that actually democracy? And then when the politicians don't listen to the science, quote unquote, then they're like, oh, now they're not being politicians because they're not listening to the science. It's like, is that democracy? That's not really actually how it works. And when you have a government that is not doing what it needs to do, what are the the actors then that are supposed to step in and force them, either force them out or force them to take stuff seriously? And, and, and so maybe let's have a conversation about that, the role of opposition parties, the role of labor in all of this, and how like we cannot wait any longer for those groups to fucking get their shit together. Yeah, no, I, you're 100% right. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was looking at Mm -hmm. the Canadian Labor Congress today and I was like expecting to see some sort of frustration, you know, about how these workplaces, they just remain open. And this is where people are contracting COVID. Um, This is where the most dangerous places are for people. And, you know, I just expected that like Canada's labor union major labor unions, the LC, would say something like, uh, you know, talking about how the how are the employers the most important thing? How is this bottom line the most important thing? Uh, that it is okay to keep all of these workers in danger, or at least calling for like the CERB to be reinstated or something uh, for people uh, who are struggling right now with these new lockdown measures that are being announced um, all over the place. Uh, but there's nothing. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing. Like the, what's major that the, the CLC has kind of announced this week is just talking about the budget, talking about the budget. And so, you know, they've made some some comments on EI and so on, but it's just like like what is happening right now? Like I just feel like everyone's like living in different worlds or something. Like maybe maybe I'm living in a different world and I just don't understand things. Like, and then I think about that for two seconds, and I know that that's not true. I do <laughs> understand things, and I you know like the outrage that I'm expecting to see at this moment doesn't like the fact that it's not happening doesn't make any sense. Like it's very very weird. Like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm expecting more. I'm expecting so much more from, uh, from labor unions, from even student unions, from 
the NDP and I just, it's not there. And it makes me, um, a, uh, a combination of emotions, uh, none of which are good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I had a debate on Facebook with some friends from home today and, um, it's really amazing how often the anti-COVID lockdowns or COVID's a conspiracy or all this kind of like rhetoric is is an opinion that is just begging for a left-wing analysis, right? Like the idea that the global elites are trying to kill people off because they want to make more money or Big Pharma wants to make more money or this was all biowarfare because – Bill Gates, the the richest man in the world, wants to be even more rich or whatever. I know he's not the richest man, but whatever. Like it's all begging for a left wing analysis, and um, and you can see this tension in Montreal right now, where there's a left wing movement against the curfew, but there has not been enough left wing organizing throughout the pandemic to make it obvious that the left is organizing against the curfew. And so actually, because the right wing has been organizing so much more and has been demonstrating so much more against the sanitary measures, that there's like a weird confusion when they collide and both start then confronting the curfew. And it's that's not the fault of activists. That's not the fo- fault of folks on the ground who are now saying, oh my gosh, we have to do something. This is where I lay the, the, the blame at the foot of the institutional left. Because like we need we me you sandy anybody listening to this podcast we need people in positions of leadership to create the situations and the spaces for us to be able to then push even further we need those spaces of education we need those spaces of popularizing understanding what's happening and 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 so that people can see their union as being someone that's actually fighting for them rather than than a group of people who are always on the back foot or who are always in defense or are always too scared I mean, I got a, a couple of messages this week from folks who work in construction, and um, and one person's like, I don't know if my union is just afraid or if um, they don't know what to do, but, like, they have not stood up to the employer and our working conditions are are literally deadly. And you just – you're just like, guys, like – Without the the institutional left, the only thing that's left are activists to do what they can. And there's a limit to that. There's a limit to activist organizing that is really local, that is focused on maybe mutual aid or focused on, 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 on actions or whatever. The limit in a moment like this is there's not enough time to connect all of these small groups together to make something that is actually bigger than like, you know, the sum of their parts, right? Right. And and this is where like the NDP, any NDP in this country that has refused to engage with the possibility of doing things differently, of not just serving motions, but actually taking some sort of radical stance, calling for the fucking uh, d- uh, demission. Oh, my God, my French calling for the um, <laughs> I actually can't think of the word calling for Doug Ford to resign. <laughs> there it is. Has the NDP even done that? Has Jugmeet? Singh called for Trudeau to resign. No, what we got from Anne McGrath when they were talking about the convention was that, well, 
we're, we're not looking for an election. We're, we're not looking for an election. If, if we're forced to go to election, we're ready, but we're not looking for an election. And it's like, what the mm-hmm. fuck? What? Y- yes, you, you are a fucking political party and you're not looking for an election. <laughs> what the fuck is your existence for then if you're not looking for an election? Of course, you should be looking yeah. for an election or you are in favor of everything that Trudeau has done. So in absence of people actually of these of these institutions being there and providing the space for people to then fill in the space to create the the like the the movements that we actually need of course it's not fucking happening and of course the far right is kicking our asses and of course not only are they kicking our asses but they're making it so dangerous that ICUs are filling up because people are getting covid and um yeah it's the the emotions that i feel are also not not good <laughs> mm. I'll end with this. So today, the day that we're recording and for the next couple of days is the 20th anniversary of a very big moment. Sandy, do you know what that moment was? No. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Uh That's good because no one listening, no one listening is going to go, of course, I know what it is, Nora. Uh, Although when I say this, you'll go like, oh, yeah, of course, obviously. Uh, This weekend is the 20th anniversary of the Summit of the Americas protest in Quebec City. Oh, yeah. No, of course. Yeah, I did (laughs) not. I actually saw you post about that. I should have just, I should have known that you were going to, anyway, continue. Continue. Yeah, of course. Of course I'd mentioned this. Um, So the Summit of the Americas protest was the the pinnacle of anti-globalization organizing in Canada. It was this incredible moment where tens of thousands of people descended in the streets of Quebec City and, um, and the uh, the security apparatus actually started to organize in a way that we would then seem to be very, very common in Canada. And so, you know, the streets were fenced off. People were uh, un- unable to access, like, their places of work and the fences, like, existed for, for a long time. Um, people were, were gassed, like, nonstop that weekend. And all for uh, – to protect the meeting of, of, the, of, this, of the FTAA, the Free Trade of the Americas Agreement, which was a free trade agreement that was, you know, for the Americas, for countries within North and South America. And you know, Quebec, Quebec City was so important because it had it was the end of increasingly radical and increasingly effective anti-globalization movement um, that was worldwide and that got crushed by everything that happened after September 11th. And September 11th ushered in a new era that was underpinned very much by Islamophobia and by the attack on civil liberties. And um, I, you know, just thinking of that, how that was the new era, and that is the era that so many of us came to age in, uh, that it's it's so fascinating now to see that connection between how on the left we are focused, we, a lot of us are focused on civil liberties or fighting against the increasing police state, while that whole fight against globalization has somehow morphed into this thing that the right wing has been able to so easily capitalize on through their anti-globalist kind of bullshit. You know, while we were walking through the streets of Quebec City today and hearing from People who have really traumatic memories of being gassed and of being violated and of just trying to have their voice heard while the state was coming down with them with full force. I was thinking about how far we have come from that moment till this day now where all of the warnings of all of the movements, whether the movements were focused on on finance or whether the movements were focused on food security or indigenous rights or the environment or whatever, they, they've all come, laid themselves bare in this pandemic. 
and the lack of ability of any political body to fix these problems, to mitigate these problems, to stop certain people from dying is just such clear evidence that it's now or never with the left. It's now or never with the NDP. It's now or never with labor. And, you know, sure, it's late in the game. We're at month 14. But it is still time. There is still time to get it together and inspire the confidence that I think so many of us are hoping can be inspired. So, or hoping can be inspired. 